This is Dave Iverson, and welcome to our continuing series, Getting to a Cure, where we explore the latest scientific developments in our quest to end Parkinson's disease. Today's conversation focuses on an organ that's increasingly in the crosshairs of that scientific search. It's not the brain, it's the gut. The human digestive tract is home to thousands of different types of microbes. It's known as the microbiome, and it's also a place where aggregations of alpha-synuclein, that telltale biological hallmark of Parkinson's, can be found. Now researchers like Sarkis Masmanian are beginning to explore the microbiome-alpha-synuclein interaction, and in so doing are entangling some tantalizing clues to how Parkinson's disease develops. Dr. Masmanian is a professor of microbiology at Caltech, and he joins us now. Well, uh, Sarkis Masmanian, thank you so much for joining us for this series of interviews as we explore the science behind the search for a cure for Parkinson's disease. Thank you very much. I want to ask at the beginning by having you say something, if you would, about why the gut in particular is an interesting place to research when it comes to Parkinson's disease. Because on the surface, it seems counterintuitive. You know, we think of Parkinson's as a disease of the brain and the loss of uh, neurons in the brain. But why is the gut to you an interesting place to pursue this search for what is behind the the mystery of, of Parkinson's? Sure. As we all know, Parkinson's disease has classically been and is a disease of the brain and, and loss of particular neurons, as you mentioned, in particular brain regions. But many patients with Parkinson's suffer from constipation. And in many cases, the constipation uh, precedes the motor deficits by years, if not decades. And it's really this gastrointestinal or GI component of Parkinson's that alerted us to the notion that maybe events in the gut could be affecting disease pathogenesis. And in particular, we were interested in whether the microbiome or bacteria that live in the gut affected disease because of this gastrointestinal issue. So one thing that I think is not clear to most of us, wasn't clear to me until I did a little bit of reading about this, is that there are actually neurons in the gut. I mean, I associate that, and I think probably most of us do, with the brain itself. But say something about that environment, what we find in the gut, and that neuronal connection, I guess, between the the gut and the brain. We have a rich nervous system in the gut known as the enteric nervous system, and there are neurons in all regions of the gut, meaning, you know, from the stomach all the way down through the end of the colon. And of course, these neurons are performing a variety of functions, you know, largely studied in terms of, of gastric and intestinal motility, controlling the muscles that fire, that move contents along the gastrointestinal tract. One of the things that I found remarkable is that the vast majority of the neurons outside of our central nervous system, outside of our brain and spinal cord, are actually found in our gut. So if you think about the peripheral or enteric nervous system and the the ratios of neurons between, you know, the uh, gut as well as other regions of our bodies, 70% of our nervous system outside of our brain and our spinal cord are actually found in our intestines. And when you think about all the neurons that make the muscles around our bodies fire or our touch receptors or, you know, the neurons that affect heartbeat and and breathing, those account for 30% of our neurons, whereas the enteric nervous system, the gut-associated neuronal network, is about 70%. And, And again, I thought this was quite remarkable that 
you know, evolution has invested so much into our enteric nervous system. And so what then is the connection between that nervous system that you've described and what you also mentioned a moment ago, the microbiome, the, the nature of the bacteria that live in the gut, is part of what you're interested in exploring then is the interaction between those two? Absolutely. We'd like to know how bacteria in the gut interact with the enteric nervous system, in particular to try and understand how those interactions affect outcomes in the brain. And so, as I mentioned, we, we do have a, a wealth of neurons in our gastrointestinal tract, but those neurons are connected to our central nervous system through the vagus nerve, through a, a network of, of nerves that, that run from the gut into the brain. And our interests are to try and understand how bacteria use this conduit, use this pathway to access uh, features in the brain and to affect outcomes in the brain. We and a few other groups have just started looking at these interactions. There's only a handful of papers now published on how bacteria in the gut interact with neurons. I think it's really just the tip of the iceberg. There's still a lot more to learn about the interactions between the microbiome and the nervous system. And you mentioned earlier also that one of the reasons why this field is so rich with potential is that one of the things that most often plagues people living with Parkinson's, as you mentioned, is constipation, and that that can occur before some of the other more classic motor symptoms of the disease appear. And we know also that Parkinson's disease is in one of these neurological conditions that seems affected by these clumps of sticky protein. In the case of Parkinson's, it's alpha-synuclein. And we know that alpha-synuclein appears in the gut as well, right? So is, is part of then what you're trying to decipher is what might cause alpha-synuclein to be present in the gut and whether or not the microbiome plays some role in that and that that in turn might be tied to this very problematic symptom of Parkinson's constipation. Absolutely. And, and I think in answering this issue, um, my hope is that by understanding how bacteria interact with the enteric nervous system that we would gain insights not just into constipation but also into the motor deficits as well. And so as you mentioned, that we have this rich enteric nervous system and that alpha-synuclein aggregation occurs in the enteric nervous system as well as in the brain. And of course, a large body of research has described how alpha-synuclein pathology or the aggregation of alpha-synuclein in specific brain regions results in the loss of dopaminergic neurons or specific subsets of nerve cells in the brain but much less is known about how alpha-synuclein aggregation affects enteric neurons. And this may be really important because there are hypotheses that have been proposed over a decade ago, well before we started this research, that suggest or speculate that perhaps Parkinson's starts in the gut, the symptoms start in the gut, and the pathology starts in the gut and moves to the brain over time. So we discussed how constipation may precede motor deficits by years, and, and there's some evidence suggesting that alpha-synuclein aggregation may also precede the events that then lead to the motor deficits. And so if the hypothesis, which is known as Brake's hypothesis, is true, then perhaps the alpha-synuclein aggregation in the gut may be a clue for people who will eventually uh, develop Parkinson's. And of course, these are, there's a set of assumptions here but if, again, that hypothesis is true that the alpha-synuclein aggregation in the gut may be a predictor 
for those who develop Parkinson's, then this opens a window for intervention. This opens a window for when people do show alpha-synuclein pathology in the gut for there to be opportunities to modify the disease or address the symptomology before the motor symptoms begin. And as I understand it, that hypothesis also includes this idea of, of staging so that you are perhaps the Parkinson's may move from one stage to another, from one part of the body, really, to another. So it sounds like you're suggesting that part of why this is so tantalizing is that you, you might find an earlier point of intervention. This might be a way in this long quest to try to figure out a way to slow down the progression of the disease or to even sort of stop it before it fully starts. This might be a particularly promising entry point. Absolutely. And, and, and there already are you know, teams of gastroenterologists and neurologists looking into the notion that one may be able to identify populations at risk for developing Parkinson's based on pathologies that begin or at least show themselves in the, in the gastrointestinal tract. And the role for microbes, though, in terms of, of alpha-synuclein aggregation in the gut still remains largely unknown, but microbes may be involved in this process. Microbes may be involved in the events that lead to alpha-synuclein aggregation in the gut. And therefore, they, those organisms, the microorganisms, may also offer an opportunity to intervene in the disease process. Well, let's take that then as a way of informing the particular research that you and your team have been involved with at Caltech, which is really fascinating, I, I think. And I want you to walk us through it, if you would, this idea that you had to work with an animal model and to begin an animal model that would, as I understand it, um, have too much alpha-synuclein, which we know is connected to Parkinson's. But take us from there, sort of how you came up with this notion and then what it is that you set out to test. So our laboratory is interested in understanding how the microbiome interacts with both the immune system and the nervous system. And we were quite interested, as we've already discussed, in how the microbiome may affect neurodegeneration. In terms of the animal itself, the, the mouse overexpresses human alpha-synuclein. We uh, used a very unique technique that our laboratory has and employs, and that's an approach called notobiology. What notobiology refers to is the ability to manipulate the microbiome of an animal. And here at Caltech, we have a facility where we can raise animals in a germ-free state, devoid of all microorganisms, bacteria, viruses, fungi, archaea, and other microorganisms, and then test those animals which don't have a microbiome versus animals that do have a microbiome and see if the presence or absence of bacteria in the gut affect the disease process. So this was our, our first experiment, though it's a very unnatural experiment, if you will, because there's no such thing as a germ-free human, but the mouse models allow us to test, is there a role for the microbiome in disease pathogenesis? And so in testing animals that are devoid of microbiome, we noticed that these animals did not develop the motor symptoms that animals with a microbiome develop. Even though those animals, both sets of these models, had this overexpression of alpha-synuclein. So they had the alpha-synuclein, but the germ-free model did not then exhibit those classic motor deficits. Correct. We are keeping the genetics of the animal 
identical between two different conditions. It's just yeah. that the two groups of animals either have or do not have a microbiome. And of course, we did the rigorous experiments to show that the expression of alpha-synuclein is no different between the two groups of mice. It's just that the symptoms are different. And in particular, as I mentioned, that animals that are missing a microbiome don't have the motor symptoms that animals with a microbiome display. And to your point, we also wanted to understand, are there differences in the aggregation of alpha-synuclein? And so, again, alpha-synuclein aggregation is believed to be the hallmark pathology that drives the symptoms of Parkinson's. And we noticed that in the brains of animals that are germ-free, we didn't see aggregation of alpha-synuclein. And this to hmm. us was quite remarkable because, again, events in the gut, in particular the presence or absence of a microbiome, was controlling the aggregation of alpha-synuclein in the neurons of the brain. And obviously, we made sure that there was no change in this expression of alpha-synuclein in the brain regions that we were testing. It's particularly the, the aggregation that's affected by microbes. So just to make sure I understand this, they had too much alpha-synuclein, but to put it in not very scientific ways, it wasn't clumping together? It wasn't congregating in those those what we call Lewy bodies or those those clumps that we think are connected to the loss of neurons? Absolutely. No change in the expression. The difference was in the aggregation of the company. Now, before I, there's, it's so interesting, but before I follow up on that, I just want to step back once and, and have you explain to us how you tested, because it may not be evident to everyone, how you, in these models, how you determine whether or not they have motor deficits. Sure. The tests that we used were are called the challenging bean test, where an animal walks across a platform that gets progressively narrower. And the longer it takes an animal to cross, the more motor impaired that is. We also used the pole descent test, where we put an animal on top of a pole and measure the time it takes for the mouse to descend the pole as it grips the pole down to the base. And again, the longer it takes an animal to descend, the more motor impaired that animal is. Hmm. Now, when you saw these results, tell me what you thought. Did you have this kind of aha moment? What went through your head when you, when you saw these results? So the person working on, on this project in my laboratory is a, a wonderful postdoc, incredibly talented uh, individual named Tim Sampson. And when Tim walked into my office and first showed me these results, I don't think either one of us believed them at first because <laughs> it's such a remarkable finding. Of course, this was our hypothesis the entire time. But to actually see the results and to see that there was an effect on motor symptoms just by manipulating the microbiome was quite astounding. And of course, we did what many other or most other scientists would do, is we repeated the experiment, and then we repeated it again, and then we did it in different ways and to use different tests. And in all the different permutations of the experiments that we performed, the results came back the same that the microbiome was affecting motor symptoms. Now, there's a, a second phase of, of the work that you did that we'll get to in just a moment. But before we do, did you have a sort of immediate speculative sense about what might be going on? Or have you, since those, those experiments were completed, about what it might be? Why would it be that the microbiome, this collection of bacteria in the gut, 
would seem to play this significant role in the formulation of alpha-synuclein clumping that would make these particular models have a, have a deficit, whereas the germ-free ones would not? The, the results in these mouse models for movement disorder or synucleinopathies where the removal of the microbiome results in the absence of symptoms parallels results from other disease models. In particular, what comes to mind are models of inflammatory bowel disease, such as Crohn's disease, as well as models of multiple sclerosis, where hmm. the removal of bacteria results in the absence of symptoms. And so again, these are animal models. They allow us to test hypotheses. And you know, if we have a finding, then to try and understand mechanisms. But I still think it's, it's quite unknown why microbes are affecting neurodegeneration initially quite counterintuitive until you start thinking of the notion that not all bacteria behave the same. And so as a microbiologist, I've, I've come to appreciate just the diversity in the activity and the function of microbes. And so from the surface, when we look at microbes under a microscope, many of them look identical, but on a molecular level, they're actually quite different and quite divergent. And we have bacteria in our intestines that have the ability to promote disease, maybe even cause disease. We have other bacteria that are protective and beneficial and may actually ameliorate disease. And so what these artificial approaches using germ-free animals do is they essentially remove all bacteria. So they don't tell you which bacteria have which particular functions, but again, they do implicate the microbiome. And of course, we and others are working our way through to try and understand what particular species of bacteria do, what are their individual activities, and based on the information, use that to not only understand the mechanism by which the microbiome impacts motor symptoms and neurodegeneration, but to potentially even derive therapies from this information. Right, right, right. So describe now, if you would, the additional phase of your work, which is equally, as I say, fascinating because it involved actually a kind of transplanting process in a sense of taking microbes from humans who have Parkinson's disease and those that do not, placing them into the mice. So, so tell us something about what you did and why and then what you found out. So mouse models have their inherent limitations, but we wanted to take it to the next level, if you will, take it to the next stage and try and begin the process of bridging the gap between mouse research and clinical human studies. And one of the ways that we approach this process of trying to understand how we can um, learn from mouse models about the human condition was to, quote-unquote, humanize the mice. And what I mean by that is once we developed these germ-free animals, animals that overexpress alpha-synuclein but were devoid of a microbiota were devoid of mouse bacteria, then these animals provided an opportunity for us to test the function of human bacteria. So the bacteria that, that live in mice are different than the bacteria that occupy humans that live in the gastrointestinal tract of people. And so armed with this unique research tool, we asked ourselves, can we identify differences in the function of the microbiome between Parkinson's patients and that of healthy controls. So the experiment that we did in collaboration with Ali Kashravazian at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago was to collect 
microbiota from Parkinson's patients, newly diagnosed treatment-naive patients, as well as healthy controls, and transplant those human bacteria into groups of animals, and then to motor test those animals to see if bacteria from Parkinson's patients and bacteria from healthy controls resulted in differences in PD-like symptoms. And again, to our surprise, but also to our gratification, we were able to identify those differences. In particular, the microbiota transplanted from Parkinson's patients into mice induced worse motor symptoms than the microbiota from healthy controls transplanted into the same animals. And I think what this may tell us is that there are different species of bacteria between the two populations, between Parkinson's patients and controls. Those differences can be in the presence or absence of organisms. They can be in the abundance or diversity of those organisms or they can be differences in the behavior of those organisms, meaning what are the genes that are being turned on or off in bacteria between the two populations. And so we, we've begun trying to understand those differences uh, between bacteria that live in Parkinson's patients and those that, that live in healthy controls and use that information to try and gain insights specifically into how microbes are affecting motor symptoms. So these were bacteria from Parkinson's patients, from the gut of Parkinson's patients and from the gut of healthy controls, placed into these animal models that had still had too much alpha-synuclein to start with. And it was that that sort of was the proverbial tipping point, it sounds like, so that these, these mice that previously uh, did okay uh, in a germ-free situation, even though they had too much alpha-synuclein, now with this added element of bacteria from a person with Parkinson's, then did not perform as well. So step back at this point for me, if you would, um, Sarkis Masmane, and, and, and say what you draw from this. I mean, it's incredibly fascinating, and I know there's much, much more work to be done, but what does it suggest to you? It suggests, in a nutshell, that the changes in the microbiome of Parkinson's patients may actually be contributing to disease. And what I mean by that is that many uh, microbiome studies in other indications and in other disease processes, as well as, you know, in terms of, of how diet and other environmental factors affect the microbiome, have identified changes or differences in the microbial population among different individuals. For example, in inflammatory diseases and metabolic diseases, we know that the microbiome is different between patients and healthy controls. There are now three papers that demonstrate that the human microbiome is different between a Parkinson's patient and a healthy control. The methods by which these differences were identified are through next-generation high-throughput DNA sequencing of the microbiome to identify the genes and the organisms that reside in each population, and then through bioinformatic approaches, show whether or not there are similarities or differences. And again, in three different cohorts from studies around the world, we know the Parkinson's microbiome is altered compared to the best-matched healthy controls. But what this research shows, and of course, as incredibly informative as it is, is that there's an association between disease and a microbiome. What's still missing is whether or not those associations are part of the disease process. So maybe another way of phrasing it 
is are the changes in the Parkinson's microbiome a consequence of some other event, or are the changes in the microbiome in Parkinson's contributing to the symptoms? And by transplanting microbiota from Parkinson's patients in healthy controls into animals and seeing differences in the mice relative to the donor, i.e. between the Parkinson's donor and the healthy control, all we're doing in the animals is changing their microbiome and leaving everything else the same, the environment, the, the, the genetics of the animal are the same. Showing those functional differences suggests that those differences are actually contributing to disease. In terms of next steps, I'm interested in sort of where you go from here to sort of kind of drill down deeper into this and try to determine perhaps what that causal agent might be, if, if there is indeed a, a causal a relationship. And as I understand it from reading a little bit about, about your work, one of the things you're looking at are something called short-chain fatty acids. And I really don't understand exactly what that is, but I'm hoping you can tell me because your thought, as I understand it, at least preliminarily, is that that, that may be one of the things that is key to what's different in, in the microbiome of someone with Parkinson's and the connection that it may have to inflammation, which we also are beginning to think has a role with the way in which alpha-synuclein starts becoming so harmful to as disease progresses? So after we identified that, it, going back to the mouse work, you know, before we, we did the transplant experiments from humans into animals, after we identified that the absence of a microbiome results in a, a great decrease or an absence in motor symptoms, we wanted to know what components of the microbiome, what were the molecules that are produced by gut bacteria that are promoting these symptoms? And based on work in the literature, it was already published in the literature, we noticed that short-chain fatty acids, which are dietary breakdown products of bacteria, induce the activation of microglia. Microglia are immune cells that are resident in the brain, and by activating microglia, there's a neuroinflammatory response in the brain that then is part of the disease process that leads to both alpha-stukin aggregation and neurodegeneration. The role of microglia in Parkinson's is still under exploration. There's obviously uh, several uh, hypotheses about how microglia are involved in disease, and many other groups are, are working to try and understand those relationships. And what our work contributed was the identification of those particular microbial metabolites which activate these immune cells in the brain, again, part of the disease process. In future steps, we want to know exactly how these molecules, these short-chain fatty acids, are affecting the events that lead to motor symptoms. We'd like to know what receptors are involved, in other words, what molecules on the, on the host, whether it be a, a mouse or a human, recognize these short-chain fatty acids, what happens after that recognition that leads to changes in cells like neurons that result in the disease, that result in the symptoms. But in addition to short-chain fatty acids, we're also quite interested in identifying, as I mentioned, which bacteria may be contributing to symptoms. As I mentioned from the human transplant work, there are differences, functional differences between the Parkinson's microbiota and microbes from healthy controls, 
and we speculate that there are individual species which may be promoting disease symptoms. And in theory, if we can identify these organisms, then one can devise ways of preventing either the colonization of these organisms or preventing these organisms from interacting with the nervous system in a way that leads to the aggregation of alpha-synuclein or the inflammation that's associated with Parkinson's and ultimately the, the symptoms of Parkinson's. Of course, we're many years away from identifying those particular activities, but in essence, we'd like to understand the mechanism of action by which gut bacteria contribute to neurodegeneration because by understanding that mechanism, then we'll have uh, discrete targets for intervention, particular proteins or particular receptors that can be targeted through either conventional or non-conventional drugs or to try and manipulate the activity of cells either in the periphery or the brain that then may, may result in alleviation of symptoms. And I want to come back to that last very uh, important point as we, as we begin to wrap up our conversation about how this may lead to some treatment um, opportunities. But before we do, I also wanted to ask you to touch on one other part of this that I think is a really interesting part of what always so often happens in, in science, which is that there are, you go a step or two in one direction and then you learn something else that takes you perhaps a step in another. And it, there's always this kind of push and pull between different findings, because as I understand it, there's also been some work that has shown that those short-chain fatty acids that you were describing that may have a neuroinflammatory activity, um, in other work has been shown to perhaps be anti-inflammatory. So there's always mysteries, I know, and I'm just interested in how you kind of sort your way through that kind of question. You're absolutely right, that short-chain fatty acids have long been known to not only be a nutrient source for epithelial cells, which are the cells that line the gut, but they also have very potent and profound anti-inflammatory effects. And so we were quite surprised, not only in terms of, of what we identified in the literature for this pro-inflammatory activity of short-chain fatty acids, but even with our own results, that when we fed short-chain fatty acids to mice, that they developed inflammation, so they were pro-inflammatory, and that that pro-inflammatory event then led to motor symptoms. We're still trying to understand those differences. We don't have good answers. Obviously, biology is very complex. But one can imagine that not all short-chain fatty acids have the same effect. And what I mean by that is that when we say short-chain fatty acids, we're actually talking about a, a class of molecules. It's not one individual molecule that we're talking about, but a handful of, of, of molecules that are, again, breakdown products of dietary fiber. And so one can imagine that ratios or levels of short-chain fatty acids may give you different results. If you have, let's say, an increase in one particular short-chain fatty acid in one population versus the other, but the total amount may still remain the same because you have a concomitant decrease in another short-chain fatty acid, then maybe that change in the ratio or level is the factor that leads to either a pro or an anti-inflammatory response. This is purely speculation at this point. I want to make that clear. But, you know, working with multiple molecules opens up the possibility that there may be 
something more than just a one-to-one relationship between a molecule and a phenotype. Yeah. No, it's so, again, so interesting and so indicative of the process that I think um, you and your colleagues and scientists everywhere always go through because one question leads to another or perhaps 10 others and, and the work begins in terms of sorting through all of that. But let's conclude by touching once again on this question of why this also is so promising for treatment purposes. Because in the end, of course, for people living with Parkinson's, the possibility of finding new treatment possibilities or new treatment targets is always one that, you know, gives gives us hope. And I'm, I'm interested again here to return to this question of why the gut is, is promising as a treatment possibility, as a target possibility, because we know from our experience with symptomatic drugs, carbidopa, levodopa, and and others, that they have to go through the gut and get to the brain, and a lot is lost, and you have to cross the blood-brain barrier, so forth and so on. It's it's tricky. It's hard to get into the brain. Is part of what's tantalizing here is that it's a it's a more friendly target. I mean, you can you might be able to get there quicker and make greater progress quicker in the gut than you can in the brain. Absolutely. And just to to extend your point, is that you know drug companies have worked very very hard to get drugs across the blood brain barrier in pharmacological doses that result in alleviation of symptoms. At the same time, trying to balance this with off-target effects or side effects of getting drugs into the brain. You know, one way of, of looking at this is that bacteria have already figured out mechanisms to communicate from the gut to the brain, as we've already discussed. And maybe a trivial way of phrasing it, but maybe bacteria have already solved the problem of how you access the brain, mm-hmm. the gut. And if we can leverage that information, if we can just understand how bacteria have learned to access the brain, then we can use that information to potentially help help patients. And it can be, as you mentioned, as easy, you know, maybe easy is the wrong word, but maybe as, as direct, as just trying to get a therapy into the gut and then letting biology do the rest of the work to control events in the brain. Of course, oral dosing of treatments and having targets that reside in the gut as opposed to the brain, is a much more tractable proposition just because of how accessible the gut is relative to the brain. Well, Sarkis Masmanian, this has been a really fascinating conversation, and I I thank you so much for your taking the time to have that conversation. But of course, most of all, I want to thank you and your colleagues for the work that you're doing. Well, thank you very much, and also thank you for acknowledging uh, our colleagues. Uh, The work is highly collaborative, with multiple groups around the world, in fact, that that contributed to our recent findings. And we look forward to continuing this research and hopefully working towards helping people. That was Dr. Sarkis Masmanian, professor of microbiology at Caltech in Pasadena, California. To learn more about the role the gut plays in Parkinson's disease, join us for our next Third Thursday webinar, Gut Check on Parkinson's. That's on January the 19th. To register, visit michaeljfox.org slash webinars. I'm Dave Iverson. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.